It's good to see you. Go ahead and grab a seat. Welcome to Legacy Church. I've met a lot of people this morning who are guests today. If you're a guest, welcome. It's good to have you here. Um, we've been going through the book of Acts for quite a while now, and so we're actually going to be in Acts chapter 19 today. We've been moving towards it fast enough to where we're going to get close to the end. If you have a Bible or an app that you use, that'd be a great place to go, Acts 19. And again, if you're a guest, we've got cards all around. If you want to fill out a Connect card, we'd love to follow up with you um, and just see if there's any way that we could serve you as a church, whether you just moved here or maybe you're um, looking around and you're looking at other churches. Maybe we could come alongside and help you on that process. But while you're turning to Acts 19, um, some of you know this about me, but I grew up on rap music. I mean, even from a young age, big fan of rap music. And when I became a Christian, I pivoted into that real crazy murky scene that was trying to be Christian rap. It didn't work out for a bunch of years, and then it finally started to pick up. But kind of its golden age was the early 2000s. And one of my favorite rap artists was called Mars Ill. Get it? Ill. Not Mars Hill, but Mars Ill. That name didn't age super well. Ill meaning whack, if you look it up on Urban Dictionary. So Mars Ill has this... Great album. It was one of my favorites. I just listened to it all the time. And they had an outro song. If you don't know what an outro is, it's kind of like an intro, but it acts a little bit like an acknowledgments chapter in a book where you're thanking people that kind of help produce that. It's just a fun little thing to throw onto the backside of an album. And on the outro for Marzil, they had a song called Lump Sum which was basically a big thank you, not to just the people that helped build that album, but to the people that helped build him as a man, which I felt was really powerful. It's one of my favorite songs of that band. And this is one of the lyrics that came out of it. All that I am is a collection of souls that God used to touch me, made a man from a simple stick figure, and if I ever met you, then you helped him paint the picture. What's always stood out is that that, that phrase, I'm a collection of souls that God used to touch me. And it got, it got me thinking about all the people that helped shape me over the years and disciple me as a man. I think about my Sunday school teachers back when I didn't even care about Jesus. I just cared who had the best donuts. This church, there was donuts in every classroom, but not all of them were chocolate covered. I wanted to know who's got the chocolate. That's all I cared about on Sunday morning, right? Where are the girls? Where are the chocolate-covered donuts? And they never quit. They just kept telling me about Jesus in new and fresh and compelling and clear ways, even though I didn't care to hear any of it. And they, they were discipling me. They shaped me. All the way to the pastor that preached the gospel that one night in 1996 in the wintertime when I heard it with fresh ears and understood what lordship meant and knew what was being called of me all the way to the campus minister that led me through a little book that kind of taught me the, the basic blocking and tackling of a life on mission. It's, it's a pretty long list. I've learned a lot by reading books, listening to sermons. I've learned so much more by searching the lives of men and women who have invested in me, by reading their lives, taking notes on them. It's how I learned how to pray. It's how I learned how to see women correctly. It's how I learned how to handle money correctly. It's how I learned how to serve people, how to see the local church. I was discipled by intentional people, and it had to be painful for them at times because I was not a simple stick figure when they found me. I was not some blank slate that came in and was just, hey, I'm blank. I've, I carry no bad theology with me. Just paint me however. No, I carried a lot of bad theology with me. I had this weird 
toxic view of seeing God, a toxic view of seeing myself, my friends, power, money. So they had to pull up an old foundation before they installed a new one. I had a lot of gaps in how I saw God. And I'm still being discipled. I'm still being discipled. And I have hopes to endeavor and disciple people for the rest of my life until my last dying breath. I want to disciple as many people as I can. I want it to be in multiple directions, multi-directional discipleship. That's the Great Commission life. The Great Commission life is full of discipleship as we pour our lives into other people and other people are pouring their lives into us. I'm getting a lot of this from the Bible. In Matthew 28, 18, what we, what we know is the Great Commission. If you ever want to know what God's will is for your life, it doesn't really matter where you live or what you do for a living. You can be sure that this is a part of it. Matthew 20, 18, Jesus gives us a mandate, and he says this, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, which includes making disciples, by the way. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Listen, ten different churches are going to take the word discipleship and probably mean ten different things. It's a great confusion, right? So I hope to clear it up a little bit today for us as a, as a people. And I also hope you consider your role in discipleship both as someone who receives it, a recipient, and a purveyor of it. Someone who is busy discipling people around you. Because you see, your steepest growth curve as a Christian, is when you are being shaped, yes, but being shaped as you shape others. That's when you're going to grow, and that's when you're going to grow fast. Pouring out as you're being poured into multi-directional discipleship, that's what's going to yield explosive growth in all of us. This is really how a church turns a city upside down too, which is what we've been looking at chapter after chapter after chapter. We make disciples as we ourselves are discipled. And discipleship is a term. I mean, it's a pretty basic idea. The definition is it's the process of us becoming more like Jesus in all areas of life. Becoming more like Jesus in how we handle money, our eyes, our mouth, our time, our friends, our relationships, our hopes, our dreams. It's discipleship, looking more like Jesus. And as I said, I've had books disciple me, sermons disciple me, but mostly broken, imperfect, and ordinary people, right? Mostly them. I mean, the Sunday school teachers, it was an accountant and a school teacher. They weren't professionals. They weren't getting paid for that, but they loved me and they had patience with me. All of this sounds super nice. So what makes us most allergic to discipleship as a whole? Why is it so difficult for us? That's going to be an important question for you and me because some of us simply are not growing. We're not. On the door jam of spiritual maturity where we kind of mark the pencil mark on how tall we were, we're just not moving. The pencil mark is not growing up the wall at all. By the way, that's not the pandemic's fault. It's not your struggling marriage. It's not your boss. It's not your lack of time. It's on you. It's on you. No one is holding your growth back but you. It's true you might be suffering in trials. You might not have a lot of time. Those are true things. But whenever you're suffering and you're in trial, that is when growth can be the most vibrant. That's where we find it. So if you're not growing, the first step to growing is to own the fact that you're not growing. Not blame, not shift it, but just to own it. And, and this is how you will know if you're not growing. You don't love Jesus as much as you used to. 
right? For, forget what you know. Forget how many facts you've memorized about Jesus, how many services you've gone to. Forget that for a moment. The true measure of your growth as a disciple are how your affections are towards Jesus. Are you satisfied in him, content, in love with him? Because our growth is not irrevocable. Some of us have moved backwards, right? Your growth can do that. I've had years where I've atrophied. Anyone in here like that? I look in the mirror, and I know that I don't love Jesus as much as I used to. I don't trust him as much as I used to. I don't have the confidence in him as much as I used to. Sometimes I care. Sometimes I don't care that that's the fact. But one thing I can tell you is that I have been in a better place, and I know that for a fact. And if that's you today and you find yourself sedentary, let me make something clear. No shame today. No shame on you. Okay? Shame, doesn't, shame doesn't grow anything fruitful, by the way. It's a bad lever for growth, this thing called shame. It might make you make an impulsive decision. It might cause some hurried changes in your life, but that's not the kind of change that is born from freedom. I mean, I want you to be convicted, but I don't want you to be condemned. And there's a big difference between those two things. We've discussed that from this pulpit before. Uh, conviction is something that's beautiful that the Holy Spirit brings. And, and conviction is the voice that says, this thing that you are doing is wrong. Condemnation is a very different voice that comes in and says, you yourself are wrong. You are not a good fit for God. Not this thing that you're doing is not a good fit for God, but you are just a bad fit for God. Paul speaks to this in Romans 8, 1. He says that there's no condemnation for those of us who are in the church, those of us who are buried in Christ. Jesus lovers, condemnation has died. That's been capped off. There's no place for it. It's an inappropriate thing to feel as a Christian. If you feel conviction for your lack of growth, that's a sign of growth, believe it or not. That's a sign of growth. If you're starting to feel like this life, this thing that I'm doing, these things that I'm not doing, that's, that's wrong. That could be the Holy Spirit talking to you, and ultimately I want you to grow. I want you to enjoy Jesus more. I want you to become more satisfied in him. I want your affections to swell to unseen levels for Christ because he is glorified in that, and you are far better off. But if you feel condemnation, like you're uninvited, until you clean yourself, of course, until you improve your behavior, you need to know that is not from God. It's not. And so I'm not going to use it today. No shame. Let's get that out of the way. Because we have two really cool case studies on discipleship in our passage today. And by God's grace, it's going to answer some pretty big questions. One of them is, why are we so hesitant with the Great Commission in making disciples and being disciples? That's one big question. The second is, why am I not growing? Maybe a little bit more personal, but why am I not growing? The answer to that has everything to do with how you see God and will greatly determine how you live out your days. So let's look at verse 23 in Acts 18. So we're going to back up the truck just a few verses. We're going to finish off the last part of Acts 18. And it says this. We just finished Paul's second missionary trip last week. Okay, that's where we, that's where we ended. And this is the word of the Lord for us today. It says, after spending some time there, he, meaning Paul in this case, departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. 
He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Okay, it's a pretty cool passage. Paul had just rolled on his third mission trip. I mean, he doesn't gather much moss. He doesn't sit around for very long. He just took a little bit of a time out. Now he's starting on his third trip. But the scene cuts immediately to Ephesus, not with Paul. And we find ourselves with Priscilla and Aquila in what today in the church planting world we would call a launch team or a core team. Just a pocket of staunch believers that become that center of gravity for any kind of church activity that's new around them and one day they overhear Apollos preaching in the synagogue and uh, apparently he's pretty gifted. He's really good. A Christian who was competent in the scriptures, taught things accurately, he was fervent in the Holy Spirit, he just needed a tune-up in his doctrine, right? Who hasn't been there? I've had people do that, pull me aside and say, hey, you'll listen, you're teaching things accurately, like he was in this case. You're pretty accurate with these 10 items over here, and I really appreciate it, but this one thing over here, boy, you hit a foul ball. That's not how that goes. This is what the Bible says to that. And for me to sit there and hear that and go, oh, you're right, that's helpful, thank you, and then move on. That's what's happening here. They pull them aside, they find some theology gaps, they install an accurate understanding of the gospel, and by doing this, they attach some turbo boosters to Apollos, basically, because he becomes so popular that a lot of people in the church of Corinth prefer him over Paul. They're like, listen, Paul's great, but I mean, let's be honest, Apollos is a whole lot more engaging. He's a whole lot more fervent. He's He's easier to listen to. People preferred him. That's how good he is at what he's doing, and we're, we're going to talk about that in a moment as well. But the summary statement here is that Priscilla and Aquila discipled him, intentionally discipled him. And here's what's interesting about this, right? Apollos is from Alexandria, this capital of Egypt, and this place has a, a reputation for cranking out educated speakers and leaders, really impressive people. So there is a humility displayed as he sits at the feet of a very ordinary couple. You have an extraordinary leader being discipled by an ordinary couple. We have this juncture where humility meets intentionality. This is cool. This is, this is really cool. This is a great model for us today as well, by the way. Okay, so hold that in your mind. That's case study number one. We're going to go to case study number two, and that's in verse one of chapter 19. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples, and he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we've not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. Now, on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. Okay. Interesting case study. These guys, around a dozen, were influenced heavily by John the Baptist. These guys were not Christians. 
They're what other scholars would call almost Christians. I like that term, almost Christians. I know a lot of almost Christians. They feel like they're just one solid stiff wind away from saying, what must I do to be saved? And that's kind of where we're finding these guys. They've been baptized, but not with a Christian baptism. They were baptized with John's baptism, which was a baptism of repentance. People were going to be baptized when they were convicted of their life full of sin. It was a preparatory baptism, one that would wait for Jesus to come. That's what's happening here. They had no exposure to the work of Christ on the cross or the empty tomb or the Holy Spirit. And that's not surprising. News traveled differently back then than it does now. Now I get a push notification and I can find out what's happening across the globe 30 seconds ago. That wasn't the case back then. I mean, it it is highly documented how people would find a group or a community or a puddle of people up in the mountains or in some weird place, and they hadn't even heard of some massive news that had happened years ago, which is why they would always ask, what's new in the world when a guest would come in or a traveler or a sojourner would come in? That's a little bit of what we're seeing right now. They were curious God-seekers, but there had to have been some discrepancy in their life for Paul to say, hey, listen, Don't mean to be awkward or rude, but it seems like there might be something askew here because I hear you saying this, but I'm seeing this with my eyes, so I just got to ask, do you even have the Holy Spirit? Like, are you Christians? It's interesting. And so they were baptized as believers. They believed in the gospel. And just to emphasize God's gladness to enlarge his church, The Spirit came powerfully in signs. This is another one of those Pentecost-like moments. This is the fourth and the last one. This is the last time you'll see the Holy Spirit land on a scene and things like tongues and prophecy and these beautiful gifts shown, right? Now, the first one we saw in Acts 2, that was when the Jews had gathered from all over the world on the day of Pentecost, right, when the church was born or the New Testament church was born. Second one is when the Samaritans were kind of grafted in and it was a way of showing the world the Holy Spirit is gluing different people together. Gone are the old divisions and look, I'll prove it by these signs. Later on, we see the Gentiles added in and now we've got these folks being added in. The Holy Spirit is still gluing different people groups together. Well, what's different about these guys? Well, they were religious people. Not even repentant, religious people are Christians without the Spirit's work. Following rules and calling sin, sin, and stepping away from sin without Jesus is still not salvation. Now, unlike Apollos' case, our first case study, he was discipled away from the cross, which means the saving work of Jesus was behind him. These people are kind of discipled towards the cross, Okay, think of discipleship a little bit bigger. Discipleship of believers, it kind of continues the work of the sanctifying Holy Spirit in our life. But whenever we are showing Jesus clearly to people who are far from Jesus, evangelism, mission, that's a way of discipling them towards Jesus. So that is what we have in common here. And one of the big themes is we have intention, in both cases, intentionality meets humility. Intentionality, humility. You've got to keep that in your mind. Verse 8. And he entered the synagogue, and for three, this is Paul again. And he entered the synagogue, and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him. 
reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years, so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, so Paul spends three months in the synagogue, which is about three months longer than he normally spends. Typically, he gets jumped by lunch. So he's there for a good 90 days. They kick him out. He moves from the synagogue to a rented space, kind of like this. We rent this space. It probably looked a lot like this. And then he spent two years there, which is a long time for Paul to spend anywhere. He spends time discipling, right? Very cool. Very cool what's going on here. The main idea is we see humble, or humble, we see a humility in the receivers of discipleship and an intentionality on the part of those who are discipling. Intentionality, humility, both present. And what we can walk away with is this more correct understanding of what discipleship looks like for us. And this is why this is noteworthy. Maybe off the track a little bit, but not entirely. These moments that we're reading about, they were not planned around a strategic curriculum bought from Lifeway, right? This wasn't built around a series or a campaign for discipleship. It just came out of thin air. These are extemporaneous moments that just appeared. And Paul and this couple in Ephesus, they, they took this opportunity in the unscripted margins of the day. They just bumped into this moment. Probably weren't even ready for it. I think that's important for us. It should recraft how we see discipleship today in the church. If you've grown up in the church, you'll probably resonate with some of this, but one view of discipleship that we carry is that it's a class, that it's a book, a workbook, an event. Friend, listen, it's much more than that. It might have a couple of those things in there from time to time, but it is much more than that. Increasing knowledge, that's a component of growing. But it's insufficient in and of itself. It's not even close to being complete. A big question I get when people come towards legacy, um, maybe they're looking to call this home, maybe they're just curious, they're a guest of some kind. One of the questions I get is, what does legacy do to disciple people? Now, what I'm hearing in that question is, what format do we use to increase knowledge here? What's the pipeline? What book series do we use? Something, something like that. And I don't hate the question because knowledge is a big, big part of spiritual formation. Look what it did for Apollos. He had some theology gaps. He had some knowledge increase. It's super important, but knowledge alone is not enough to grow a disciple. If it was, the Pharisees would have been the best at it. And if, if knowledge was sufficient, then pastors who've been through just a few years of formalized education, they'd never foul out. They'd never have issues. They'd always be very, 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 very mature. I mean, when I, when I look back at our records, Legacy Church, just in our last five years, with some of that being in a pandemic, mind you, we've taught over 36 classes here. That's a lot of classes. That doesn't even include our greenhouse events we do for our, our missional community leaders. It doesn't include our pastoral residency. And we have plans to offer more with a wider scope, with more variety in our teachers. Why do we want to do this? Because classes provoke growth. Old foundations are uprooted and discarded, and new foundations are poured. And you, you, you got to have that. You have to have that. We typically average between 6 and 12 people in a class. And a lot of them are the same people, being very honest. And although I would love to see more formatted learning, I know it does not equal maturity in the believer. I know that. We could be full of knowledge and not full of love. We could be full of knowledge and factoids and not be wise. 
In fact, we see Paul talk to the Corinthian church about this in the eighth chapter of 1 Corinthians. Stay where you're at. He says, now concerning food offered to idols, colon, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. This is an interesting case in the fact that there were some believers that had a theology that was robust to know that if an animal was sacrificed in front of an, an idol, like a big carved wooden idol or something, that there weren't demons in the meat later on that they could eat it, right? They, the, the chicken nuggets and the brisket didn't have demons in it. They were free to buy it. They were free to cook it. They were free to eat it. But what they would do with that knowledge is flaunt it in front of believers that would struggle with that. They were unable to disassociate the demon from the, from the meat, the ceremony from the meat. And so Paul's basically saying, hey, congratulations for being so smart as you're blowing people up around you, those who are not quite there. These are people who are smart and not very wise. Maturity is not always congruent with knowledge. They don't always move the same direction, okay? So it should recraft a little bit of how we see discipleship. But, but why do we hesitate to be discipled? Why do we not like it so much in our lives? I think one of the biggest reasons we don't want somebody else in our life is just the raw exposure of it. Just being known. I mean, you can maintain cover with a book or a class. You could listen to a podcast on your way to work and not really get the probing questions. Even if they ask questions, you don't have to answer them. You could just flip the page or just listen to the next episode. Much harder to do that with someone that loves you sitting across the table or on a phone. Much more difficult to do it then. We don't want to be exposed. I mean, it's exposing to even admit that we're not where we want to be. Listen, nobody in this room is where they want to be spiritually. Not a single one of you. All of us walked in here with, I wish I'd... I wish I was a little further along in some category. But we don't say that to everybody. You're not at Chipotle. Hey, welcome to Chipotle. It's good to have you here. What can I get you? Well, how how are you doing today? Well, I mean, spiritually, how am I doing today? (sighs) Not that great, to be honest with you. I wish I was a little further along in my, my Bible memory. We don't do that. We don't even do it with each other, though, do we? We we hate the exposure. The fact that others might even shape us admits that we're not where we want to be. This requires humility. The humility of Apollos here is staggering, is it not? For a guy like that to sit at the feet of these people, man, our fear of exposure. Listen, it is nothing more than just the need to appear impressive to the people around us, which is a form of pride. It's a self-infatuation. I need to look a certain way, which, which means you're not really free to be yourself. So we protect our approval rating, our our Rotten Tomatoes rating. We want it to stay this high. I need you to see me this high. And once you are really convinced that I am this kind of a person, i got to do whatever it takes to kind of uh, boost it a little bit higher. But if I tell you what I'm really struggling with, it drops like a rock. And I need you to think good things of me. That's what we tell ourselves, right? God's view of me is insufficient. I have to add your view of me. God's love and his approval of me, not enough. I need you to approve of me. I need you to think I'm a certain kind of guy. You see, I think we honestly want to grow, but we want it easy and we want it on our terms, which means we cannot be exposed. 
That's one reason discipleship is so difficult for us to step into, to invite, and to be humble when it's coming. It's one of the reasons. But even if that's true, why do we hesitate when we disciple others, right? Pouring into other people. I think probably there's a couple reasons. I think the biggest one is we just don't feel adequate. We see discipleship as some dark art that you learn in seminary after six years. (laughs) It's not. Priscilla and Aquila, I mean, they were tent makers. Here's the truth, though. You'll never feel knowledgeable enough to step into the life of somebody else. That day is not coming, right? Some of the people that have shaped me, have discipled me, have not known as much as I do theologically. I mean, just consider that for a moment. I mean, I went to one of the largest seminaries in the world. I have 25 years of experience planting churches and campus ministries. I I, I did the math the other day, just loose math. Over 20,000 hours spent just putting sermons together, studying commentaries, the Bible repeatedly. I've put a lot into this, and yet I have sat at the feet of many tent makers with a lot of fingerprints on my life of people that don't know a fraction of what I know when it comes to the Bible. Some of you even, some of you have had words with big gravity to it, weight, that have impacted me, that have shaped me, that have, that have turned me into the man that I am. I agree with the rap song we were looking at. I'm a collection of souls that God used to paint the picture even in this room. Friend, if you're waiting to be excellent before you find Apollos or speak directly into God-seeking people that happen to be religious, you will never step foot into the Great Commission. You'll always be just riding the pine, just watching it all go aside, just waiting to be smarter, I guess. But that's not what we're called to do. We're called to help people see Jesus accurately. That's what discipleship is. This is who Jesus really is. Right? That's, that's, that's actually a great question to ask somebody that you see struggling. They're thrashing around. Just ask them, who is Jesus to you today? Who is Christ to you? What does the gospel mean to you in this moment right here? That's all discipleship is. I'm not saying that increasing your knowledge is not important. I'm saying that there's no barrier that you have to cross where we come up and put a little badge on you that says they have actually achieved enough educational you know, increase of knowledge to start discipling people, right? So you've made it. So go, go forth and disciple, right? That doesn't exist. I think another big reason we will not disciple others is we just don't want the hassle. It's the Adam in us, which is just resolved that we are better off when we are left alone and we are better off when we just leave other people alone. You've seen them. People come by, they're a tire fire. And you're thinking, yeah, I don't think I'll get involved in that. That looks like somebody else's issue, maybe someone that gets paid for it, something like that, but that is heavy lifting there. I'm not even dealing with that. We get that from Adam. We get that honestly. Here's the truth, though. There is no version of you growing decoupled from growing others. You won't even grow until you start wading into the mess and the fray and the carnage that is the lives of others. Discipleship happens best when you are pouring into others. And I mean your discipleship. You will grow the fastest and the deepest when you are pouring your life into others. I mean, when when asked about our discipleship process, I bet people aren't really expecting to hear, hey, just find somebody you're doing life with and then pour into their life and then pour everything you got and then keep pouring. And And don't just disciple them. Disciple them on how to disciple others, right? Don't just teach them the things that Jesus taught. 
make sure that one of those things is how to disciple other people. It happens best. You see, what we're hoping for is a book or a class or a program. I hope you see the difference now. I hope we've done enough work, even at this point, to see that there's a big difference. I've spent so much of my life working with broken people, young leaders, young couples, and I leave feeling closer to Jesus because I have to grow in order to lead. I have to grow. I mean, I have to pray. I have to ask for wisdom. I mean, there's no two problems that are the same. I've got no playbook. I walk into those, and I'm just waiting to hear what the problem is, you know, or I I hear someone talking in that unscripted margin of the day, and i got to step into it. But that requires me to grow. I have to sacrifice. I have to be intentional. I I have to beseech God for wisdom. I have to think. I have to learn. I have to listen. I have to hurt with them. I have to celebrate with them. That means I'm growing as I pour into other people. I think if you remove the Great Commission from me, pouring into others, I shrink. I stop growing. I need an outlet, not just an inlet. That's the greater view of the Great Commission for us. Listen, be warned. Be warned. Some of you, you have hit your ceiling when it comes to growth because you're not discipling others. You've hit your ceiling. Hope you like the view. Seriously, I get it. You're busy. You're busy. I get it. You're tired. You don't feel like you know enough. You don't feel like you have enough. The big question I want you to carry around today is who is it around you in your orbit that says that person is shaping me? Who points to you and says that person is molding me to look more like Jesus? If you were to disappear, they'd have to go hunt for somebody else because what you were giving them was valuable. Who is that for you? You will not grow past a certain point ignoring the Great Commission. You won't. You'll be stuck. You'll be stuck. You see, Jesus left us with a multiplying mandate. Not just make disciples, but make discipling disciples. Right? And at this point, you might feel a little bit of condemnation if you're not doing this. That's why I mentioned it earlier. Don't. Don't. Resist it. I get it. But you're on a journey, just like all of us. Everyone in this room is on a journey. When Jesus rescued us, away from our old life and brought us into his family, he brought us into one part destination and one part journey. You were brought into a family. So in some ways you're already home. But we're also pilgrims and sojourners and we're nowhere close to home. And that's both true at the same time. But in this hallway between places, God uses broken people to shape and disciple other broken people. To see Jesus more clearly, to enjoy him more, to have our affections swell more. Jesus frees us from our demand to appear a certain way. And one of the the phrases I love to say to people, and I love to say to myself even more, is there is no one to impress. There's absolutely nothing to prove. I'm free. I'm free. And, and, And while we're talking about pressure and condemnation, it's also important to underline a couple times the phrase, God gives the growth. God is the one that grows. He paints the picture through us. He's working through us to disciple others, but he is the one that grows people. And we have to be careful when we self-appraise how well we're doing as a discipler based on the results around us. You've got to be careful with that. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3. Whenever the topic comes up of how much people love Apollos and how much people love him, 
and how he's got to deal with that awkwardly, I'm sure. But he says this in verse 5. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. This is what this means. If you're good, if you're a great discipler, you might sow a lot of seed and never see the results from it. Welcome to the Great Commission. <laughs> it doesn't make you bad. It makes you faithful. You just sow, and you sow, and you sow, and you sow, and you just let God be God. Listen, if we were to go back in time and ask the guys who shaped me in my earliest of days, <laughs> I bet they would tell you they weren't sure I was buying it. I'll bet they will tell you that I was not always picking up everything they put down. I bet a lot of them felt defeated in the moment. I don't know about this Luke guy. I mean, he said these things. He made a decision, but I don't know, man. I bet they felt defeated. We plant, we water, we leave the rest to God. And what this does is it erases this power that shame has over us whenever people that we invest in go sideways or disappear. It also takes the pride away whenever they bloom and they grow and they actually exceed us. It does both of those things. God is the one who changes hearts. He just uses us to paint the picture. So listen, if you are born again and you are a Christian, whether you're watching or you're here, who is it that you could pour your life into? Who is it in your orbit? Maybe you're already doing it. Maybe you don't know anybody, right? And that would mean that you're not inside of community to the degree where you would even have those unscripted moments. The thing about unscripted moments is you don't even notice them unless you're with somebody, right? A lot of us, we've decreased in our discipleship reach because we just don't know anybody. So who are you discipling? And then who is discipling you? Who can pour their life into you? It doesn't have to be like a middle school dance, by the way. You walk across the room, hey, man, i just kind of watching your, although it could be this, just watching the way you live. I see some marks of Jesus that I really like, and if I give you permission, would you just speak into my life and tell me where I am far from the mark? I really covet what you say. That's a conversation that's not too awkward, I don't think. I mean, it might sound like it the way I just scripted it out, but something that sounds like that, something that rhymes with that, you know, you could do that. But whenever someone comes into your life in one of those moments in the margin and speaks something, can you sit under it humbly? Can you listen to it? Can you get them to elaborate? Can you grow? There's a lot for us to repent as a church, and it is of the self-appraisal, looking at ourselves, the self-infatuation. I don't know enough. I don't have enough. I don't want to do this. There's a lot to repent for. They're all toxic and septic ways of seeing the gospel and what it has afforded us in freedom. And listen, if you're here and you are far from Christ, or you're watching and you're far from Christ, Look at these 12 guys. Religion wasn't enough for them. They were pretty well behaved, right? But they wouldn't have been fine without the gospel. Religion is just trying to scrub yourself without Jesus. It's following the rules without Jesus. It's saying no to sin and turning your back on sin without Jesus. It's trying to be approved and righteous without Jesus. That's just that's all religion is in a nutshell. That's what religion is. And that's what these guys did. They called sin, sin. They tried hard to avoid it, and they followed rules. But rules don't grant salvation. They don't. 
That's the whole idea of the gospel. We surrender to what Jesus did as he is the one that behaved. He is the one that followed all the rules. He is the one that said no to sin and really did it. And we hide in him. We submit our life to him. We surrender to him. We have faith in him. You might have an opportunity today, friend. I mean, if you're lost, you're far from Jesus, or you're watching, or you're here, you have an opportunity today. A great one. Listen, Pat, go ahead and stand with me, and we'll finish this out. We'll take communion together. It's good to know and get a view of forever, just to know that discipleship is not forever. Think about that. Discipleship is not forever. It will end one day because we will know as we are known and our infatuation for Jesus will swell second by second. That means that every second you're in eternity, you will have deeper affections for Jesus than the second that was beforehand and that will go on in perpetuity, forever. It's a timeless swelling of our affections. Think about that. It goes up and down today, doesn't it? It ebbs and it flows, probably depending on what's going on in our life. But when we are celebrating forever at a banqueting table of a different wine and a different bread, we will have affections that get deeper and deeper and deeper, and we won't even understand in the moment how we can be possible, and yet it is. That's how much we love Jesus. Until that day, we shape and we shape others. Until that day, we are humble and we are intentional. We do the best work we can in the unplanned, unprepared margins of the day as a church full of ordinary people. Amen.